Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rula interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at rula.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Rula and this is Rula Conversations. I'm going to be joined today by our resident photojournalist James Start to talk about James's recent trip to the Vuelta a San Juan in Argentina, and also the shock news of Peter Sagan's impending retirement. There will also be a short extract from my interview feature with Theo Gegenhart, which will be in the next edition of the magazine. And then our tech correspondent, Dan Cavallari, will be checking in from Colorado to bring us his look at the Canyon Ultimate CFR and an interview with Canyon's design engineer, Lucas Burr. But first, the Vuelta a San Juan. James, how were your holidays in South America? Holidays? What are you talking about? That was hard work, hard labor. The weather looked amazing. It was. It was uh, over 100 every day. And, and while I was sweating to death on the back of that moto, I was not complaining once because I knew what it was like back here in, in Europe. It's been hovering around freezing ever since I got back. And as you can hear, perhaps, or you will hear, you know, the sirens are going by all the time. There's all kinds of protests. Uh, the mood is not great here in France. It was so great to be back in San Juan. One of the last races I did before COVID and the last race that I have yet to do since COVID. It's just a special place in the middle of that Argentinian summer with that intense heat, but it's wonderful. The people are just so happy to see bike racing. So appreciative of all these amazing cyclists that are coming over from Europe to start their season in their little province of Western uh, Argentina. And the racing's pretty great too, as, as Fabio Jacobson said. I mean, there were a lot of sprint stages. Every sprint stage was so hard fought and they were really on par with many Tour de France stages. I mean, when I think back on some of the last couple of years of the tour, there was as many top flight sprinters here, sometimes more than on some tours. And what was your overriding impression of the race, just in terms of the atmosphere and the, the color of it all? Well, I just love it. The color is great. I mean, it's a totally uh, unique stage. We Stage two started in Villa Santo Augustin. We had like a three hour drive in a van out there. And then we went through like a five hour stage through what could have been the Mojave Desert. I mean, it was like, it looked like it was right out of a Western movie. It was, you know, like cactus all over the place and these incredible 
rock formations sculpted by centuries of wind. Just stunning. So I had a great time. On the racing perspective, I would say the one thing that is uh, lacking, it would be nice to have one kind of punchy stage. We had a lot of flat stages and one really big mountain stage, but no real puncher stage. And that would have been nice. Yeah. So I should say that the race was won by Miguel Angel Lopez, representing Team Medellin EPM. And he won the mountaintop finish at Alto Colorado, ahead of quite surprising Filippo Ganna of Ineos, then a quartet of Colombians headed by Bora's Sergio Higuita. And Remco Evenepoel, the world champion, was up behind them in seventh place. And that was largely the GC, wasn't it? Save for, I think, Egan Bernal pulled out on stage six. And then in and around that, the sprint stages, which is to say the rest of them, were won by Sam Bennett, won by Fabio Jakobsen, won by Fernando Gaviria, couple for Sam Wellsford, which was very impressive. And then Quinn Simmons surprised the sprint teams on stage three just to nip in ahead of them. So what were your conclusions on a racing level? Did it unfold as you expected? Yeah, it did really. Even Ghana finishing second on the Alto de Colorado was not a surprise to me because I was there three years ago and he finished, I mean, just off the pace. It's like 2,700 meters up. So it's super high. I mean, we're like, we're kissing the Andes Mountains right there, right? But it's just like this long drag of like 30 kilometers, just constant. I mean, the whole stage just is 200 meters constantly going up. So the pitches are never real high. And it plays to somebody, you know, the power of Ghana. It's what happens is that just all of a sudden the altitude kicks in somewhere around 2,000 meters and it's a different kind of game. That's what Evanapol found out because he attacked with about 10K to go. So they were at about 2,000 meters and brilliant attack. I was on the bike and we had these little like 125cc bikes, right? And I'm yelling at my driver as best I could in my pathetic Spanish to vamos, vamos to try to get out of Evanapol's way. And he actually passed us at one point. That's how hard and fast he was going or how slow we were going on the bikes. But then he sort of stalled and just couldn't, maintain it and Medellin just kept putting the pressure on and they gobbled him up and he had nothing to respond with when the counterattacks started and what I liked about it was at the finish he just said well that was a stupid move you know I mean this is a world champion this is one of the biggest engines the sport has seen in years and he just he totally blew and he totally assumed it he just said that was dumb and he totally underestimated his competition he totally underestimated the altitude and the climb so even though the Alto de Colorado is not like one of these ultra steep uh, climbs you find in Spain or maybe the Dolomites or something. It is a climb of its own. It's a hard climb and it needs to be respected. And as Evanapol showed us, if you don't, if you get a little cocky and ride beyond your, your strength, there's no going back. He was gone. And that was the end of his week of racing, really. Did you get a sense from the riders of how their form was in comparison to where it would be later in the year? I mean, I know... They've been saying every year, they seem to say there are no easy races anymore. The races get more and more intense earlier and earlier every year. Was Evan Paul anywhere near the form he would expect to be at the Giro? Was Lopez, you know, maybe specifically targeting this race? What was your sense of that? Well, I don't think Remco is anywhere close to his best form. I don't think he's been doing a whole lot of intensity. And that's probably one reason why he blew, because he hasn't been training, doing that kind of training. The Colombians are always a bit different. They're coming out of Colombia. They're getting ready for the Colombian National Championships. So we're just a, a week after that. They've been coming out of high altitude. It's always a race that has surprises. Um, 
very modest riders have turned the tables on big name riders in this race just because they came out of high altitude and have been racing when the European guys are only just starting to get their feet wet. It's their first race of the year. So there's always kind of two speeds, a certain dichotomy. The sprinters, obviously, they're fast. Um, and I think their levels, while maybe not Tour de France levels, their top end speed is what it is. And you saw very good sprints. The biggest sprinting names there, I think, were Jakobsen, obviously, Sudal Quicksteps leader and has won, Tour de, won the Tour de France stage last year. Sam Bennett has won tour stages and won the green jersey. Fernando Gaviria, it's been a few years since we've seen him at absolute best, but he's won tour stages and won the yellow jersey at the, the Tour de France. But actually, it was Sam Wellsford who won the most sprint stages. And I have to admit, I know very little about him. So can you tell us a bit about him and his impact on the race and how he came to win those two stages? Yeah, well, he was the only one to win two stages, um, and he came out of literally almost nowhere. But his DSM team, they put together a good sprint train, and they finally got it right on the last two days of racing. And Wellsford, he's Australian, comes from a real track background, big guy. And those final two stages are, you know, just very flat stages. The one is kind of goes around the uh, beltway of San Juan, the final day, so it's just pancake flat. It's short. It's all about speed, and he had speed to burn. Will he have that in Paris-Nice or later in the year where he has to actually get over some some real climbs, some real punchers and stuff like that? I don't know. I don't know enough about him. But when it comes to pure speed, he's got it to burn. So a rider who added to his already huge collection of high finishes in races throughout the year, who got six top tens in Argentina in seven days, was Peter Sagan. But the big news about Sagan wasn't his results in San Juan. It's that he announced that he's going to be retiring. And I know you're a big fan of Sagan, James, and you interviewed him for Rulo 116, which is still available to buy. What was your reaction to the news and what impression did it make on you? Yeah, it's this very special moment. I'll be honest, I, I suspected it was coming because I'm also a photographer for the Total Energies team. And I was at the training camp in uh, December when we did all the team pictures. And Gabriele, his uh, press officer, said to me just in passing, you know, Peter's really going to be thinking here in the next couple of weeks about where he's going, how much longer he's going to stay in the sport. Uh, his contract goes to the end of the year. Does he want to prolong it for another one or does he want to announce to the world this is it and make every race really special and go out at the top of his game? And when I got to San Juan, they had announced there would be a press conference on the rest day which happened to be Sagan's birthday, and we were all invited. And I asked Gabrielle, I said, you know, Gabrielle, um, you know, we talked about some things in, in December. What do you think? And he's like, oh, no, 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 birthday, birthday, just birthday. I mean, they kept it so well under their head, it wasn't even funny. But as soon as we sat down there, you know, they had this, it was in this uh, little press tent, and they had a film running of the highlights of his race, of his career, his greatest victories. And then he showed up with all of his best friends and teammates, you know, Daniel Haas was there, Bodenauer was there, his mechanic was there, his Swanier was there, his DS was there, and they all sat together. And it was pretty clear what was gonna happen. And yet still, when the words came out of his mouth, I mean, wow, I mean, what a career. I can only think of a handful of riders that have had this kind of impact on the sport. Pantani, obviously, being one of them in, in the last 30 years since I've been covering it. You'd have to, you have to say Lance Armstrong had huge impact, for better or worse. But, you know, I mean, despite history and stuff, when he was racing, he had huge impact on the sport. Sagan, I mean, he just has this ability to do things that another, nobody else does and to connect with the fans like few others do. And... 
you know, he can be very protective about his private life. You know, he keeps things at a certain distance. How many times has he said, well, we will see? Well, that's just because he's a very happy-go-lucky, lighthearted guy. And he goes into a race going, I've done everything I can, but it's not all about me. 90% of bicycle racing is about reacting to other moves. Only about 10 of it is creating your own story. And it doesn't always go in your favor. So he knows that he was able to create his own story many times, but not always. He has this relationship with the fans. It's really special. And I think in addition to his own health issues, this is one of the th reasons why I think he wasn't at his top of his game last couple of years, because racing through COVID for somebody like that, who has such a special relationship to his fans, just not the same thing. And he was struggling to find inspiration and struggling to just to be 100% healthy. I find Sagan very interesting. And I actually think, being brutally honest about it, I think his impact outshone his Palmares. I think he's got a very impressive Palmares. I mean, it's, he's won, you know, the, winning the world championships three times. And that's impressive. He's won Flanders. He's won Roubaix. And his achievements at the Tour de France are pretty impressive. Only, in inverted commas, 12 stages, um, which is, that's pretty good. Not many riders get into double figures. Very few win a single one. So 12 is impressive. But so many top placings, seven green jerseys. I think that's really impressive. But I actually think his, his impact was greater than that. His career, I don't think, will be measured in terms of his results, which were impressive, but not outstanding in the very stratosphere of, of results. And I think that's down to two things. First, as you say, his relationship with the fans, but also he was a mould breaker and he, in a way, was the first to really set that trend of that kind of climber-sprinter-classics hybrid who really thrived in the last decade or so. Now you see quite a lot of riders like that. There's Wout van Aert and Vanderpool, who we saw at the World Cyclocross Championships just last weekend, are the same kind of rider. You can't pigeon the, the whole of them as sprinters or punchers or time trialers or climbers. They're kind of real, very highly skilled hybrids of two or three skills. And that's what Sagan was to me. I thought when he came along, and this is why he won so many green jerseys, there was nobody who could sprint as well as him, yet also compete in such a variety of finishes at the Tour de France. So for me, his results were great. His relationship with the fans was brilliant. And for me, the most impressive thing was the way he just set a new mould in cycling. Absolutely. And that's, I think, you know, what I was trying to say. I didn't say it as succinctly as you. But yeah, if you look at his palmarès, it's not the biggest palmarès in the sport. He won one Roubaix, one Flanders. The only guy to win three consecutives, that's special, at the World Championships in seven uh, green jerseys is special. But it's, it's, he just goes so far beyond that. And Sagan, you know, had this way of making victory his own, you know, the Hulk and all these different gestures he'd have and winning that first Worlds. And the first thing coming out of his mouth was talking about the crisis in Syria. And he just had always a way of personalizing it, making victories special. And just he's going to go down as a very unique rider. We did this feature in 116 and we called it The Incredible Lightness of Being Peter Sagan. It was inspired by a movie uh, from back in the 80s, I believe, which I was just thought was such a great title and applied to Sagan because he's always had this ability to keep things light. And so I talked about that with him. Peter's one of the only riders that goes to a bike race to relax. And I'm talking about once the gun starts, because when he goes to that race, he's on all 
the time. He has solicitations from, you know, specialized, from 100%, from the press, you name it. He has a fullest agenda. Finding any downtime for that poor guy is hard. It wasn't always easy that he, you know, early in his career, really kind of struggled with it, didn't even want to leave his room or go down and have dinner because he just wanted to face people, didn't have energy to call his family or friends, just was kind of exhausted about being the quote-unquote superstar. And it took him a while to get his head around that. I was going to say, actually, that I did notice around 27, 2018 at the Tour de France, this is not a criticism. It sounds like a criticism. He got he seemed to be very jaded in interviews and the mix zone. And it used to be a kind of running joke in the press corps that he really looked like he was phoning it in. But then we kind of realised, somebody counted up. I did a quick count up just on my fingers and thumbs this morning of how many days he spent in the green jersey because he obviously won it sometimes. He must have done around 125, maybe 130 laps of that mix zone with idiots like me sticking dictaphones in his face and asking him how it feels to be wearing the green jersey. And no surprise he got a bit jaded and tired. And a linked thing with that is I see his box office appeal. I understand his box office appeal. I can understand why the sport has loved having him around. At the same time, I do not think I know what he is really thinking or what he is really like. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, as I said, I think in the end, he is a private person. I think family is very important for him. I think you see it on his Instagram feed, obviously. You know, his relationship to his, his son, Marlon, is very special. A couple of years ago, I did a, one of those uh, Proust questionnaires with him, you know, just a sort of personality quiz, trying to flush out some other things. And about five of those answers, he responded with Marlon, my son. And this was a, really a key reason for him retiring. He feels like I've missed being a father to my son, for this many years already, I don't want to continue that. And that's a factor to me. So that, that is clearly something that's important to him. I mean, he's a regular guy. I was at the training camp in December and I was having breakfast and all of a sudden this big hand comes from behind on my shoulder and I look around and it's Peter, you know? He's like, hey James, how's it going? And you know, for 10 minutes we just talked about family, life. I mean, Peter's a very regular guy. But the one other thing that's really important about understanding Peter Sagan and why he's gonna have such a lasting impact is he understood very early in his career, it's not just about the victories, it's about the way you win. And he made every victory so special. And a lot of riders come to that later in their career. Yeah, there's another thing about Sagan which is interesting. He's one of a whole generation of really prominent riders who came through very young and all born in 1990. And people in the 1990s generation include Sagan, Nairo Quintana, Tom Dumoulin, Michael Matthews, Thibaut Pinot and Romain Bardet were both 1990 babies, Johan Esteban Chavez, Roran Dennis and Michal Kwiatkowski. And it just seems like this generation is kind of just reaching the sunset of its long period of influence on the world of cycling. And I think Sagan's one of the last of that generation, or, you know, Bardet's still riding riding well but Pino announced his retirement Quintana's had trouble getting a team Tom Dumoulin has retired Sagan's one of the last men standing but um got a, a random question for you James do you know who the highest ranked cyclist now who was born in 1990 on the UCR rankings is huh well it's probably not Sagan uh, and it's not Kiatowski you gave me a bunch of names there uh let me say did you say Chavez Yep, he was born then, but it's not him. It's Pelo Bilbao, 
And just goes oh, to show right. that, you know, that generation came through very strong, very young. But in a way, a lot of them, they peaked in the mid 2010s and struggled to match their achievements later on, which could be an interesting forecast for the current young generation coming through. Whether that will be the same for them or not will be interesting to see. But just to go out on with Peter Sagan, I'd like to ask you what your favourite or most emblematic Peter Sagan memory was and is. Well, it's very clear for me. It happened in 2021. And I've been working on, a, over the years, I've been very interested in the history of cycling and been doing a photo series on historic champions. And I've gotten to know Freddie Martins over the last couple of years. And I've been to his house a couple of times, photographed him, great guy. And somebody I'm happy to call a friend now. And we were sitting there at his house one day and I said, so who are the guys today that you really like? And he just said, you know, or do you have a favorite? And he said, very clearly, Peter Sagan. I said, really? He said, oh, love Peter. I said, and we're, you know, great rider for all the reasons we've just been discussing. I said, and we're, we're friends. I said, oh, really? You're friends? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, often when he comes to Tour Flanders, we get together. I said, really? And I knew that Peter's team, the Bora team hotel, was in Rosalaire, where um, Freddie stays or lives. And I said, you know, Freddie, I would love to document that. I mean, I know Peter and I know you and I'd like to document that. And he said, well, great. And a couple of days before Flanders, I called up Gabriele, Peter's uh, press officer. I said, Gabriele, I understand that Peter and Freddie are, are friends. And I said, oh, yes, Peter likes Freddie very much. I said, well, you know, I've been doing this thing on historic champions, and I would love to get them together for a portrait session together and, you know, and have them talk about the sport. And I said, I know this is Tour Flanders. I know that Peter's one of the favorites. I also know that this is during COVID, right? Everybody's paranoid. And I said, but do you think there's any chance we could get them together? And his answer, I'll never forget. If it's for Freddie, yes. And in the end of the day, I was really happy about the pictures. And I offered each of them a print, exhibition quality print. Uh, Freddie chose one and it's in his house. And I uh, made one uh, last year for Peter. He chose it at the December camp and I gave it to him in January. And I said, you know, this perhaps, you know, will go up on his uh, hotel museum. I hope so. I'm very proud of the prints and I think he very much enjoyed them. And I'll just never forget that. I think for me, it's a specific moment in 2012 at the Tour de France. And I think the 2012 Tour de France is what I think about when I think about Peter Sagan. That's the first time I was aware of him before. Obviously, he had you know, won stages in Paris in 2010. He had become a very prominent rider. But 2012 was the first time he hit the Tour de France. He hit it like a ton of bricks. I think he won three stages in the end, won the green jersey and was just irrepressible. I hadn't seen anything like that for a long time at the Tour de France. And I just got struck by his impact on the race and how irrepressible he was. But the single moment which stands out to me most was in the Bannière de Luchon in the Pyrenees, deep into the third week of the race. And Tom Avoclaud had won the stage. And there'd been a bit of yellow jersey action, but Sagan obviously came in a long way down, but still had to do the podium protocols as the green jersey. And I remember him, he was standing on the wrong side of the barriers at one point. And having ridden two thirds of a Tour de France or over two thirds of a Tour de France and 150k or whatever in the high mountains that day, he just leapt over the barriers 
in a way that most normal people couldn't even do, let alone having ridden the amount he'd done. And it just made me think, he's a ball of energy, a ball of intensity, and I'd never seen anything like him. So that's the moment that really sticked to me from Peter Sagan. So, I had the pleasure of interviewing Theo Gogan Hart for the next edition of the magazine, Ruler 117, which is the body issue. Gagan Hart is one of the most thoughtful interviewees in cycling, and our conversation went in all kinds of directions. I'm going to read a little bit of the feature, and we'll hear from Theo after that. When Theo Gagan Hart talks about being a teenage racing cyclist in London, it is not the wins, the defeats, or the action that are the most prominent memories. It is the evening rides back across London from the Crystal Palace Circuit or Hernhill Velodrome that have burned themselves into his mind's eye. A London sunset on a clear summer's evening is one of the finest and most evocative views in the world. The topography to the west is flat, so the thick orange-golden light cuts almost horizontally across the city, bouncing off glass buildings and refracting through the dusty air. From the low hills in South London, the clustered skyscrapers of the city and Canary Wharf hog the attention, but the other classic spikes on the horizon, the BT Tower, St Paul's Cathedral, the Shard, also all glow. Gagan Hart's personal locus is Tower Bridge, the crossing point en route back from, to his home in Hackney from South London. The classic Thames cityscape sunset is more linked in the collective British folk memory with Waterloo Bridge because of the kink song, but a Tower Bridge sunset is just as striking. Some of my best memories of growing up is riding across Tower Bridge on a track bike to Hernhill or riding back in from Hog Hill. You've got amazing view of the city and you're coming in late summer's evening. I used to love the rides back from those weeknight races as much as the races themselves, because the city in the summer when it's really quiet and you know a beautiful evening and you've got the adrenaline of a race is something really, really special. It's funny, I couldn't see myself racing when I retire like some guys do, but if I think about that moment, that's something that you would want to capture over, over and over. During our interview... Gergen Hart also talked about his love of walking around London. I think my favourite thing to do in the off-season, or even occasionally if, if I've been for a ride when I am visiting my family and have the afternoon somewhat free, is, is I really love like one, two, three hours just, just walking. It's something I've been doing for probably almost 10 years and just discovering new little I think the important place for me is the next place around the corner because there's always something new there and there's something changed and you feel nostalgic about something that's gone, definitely. I think that's, without a doubt, a massive part of it is that there's also a lot of sometimes sadness about regeneration, about people getting turfed out for, for rent, about businesses that you grew up with that in your conscious existed permanently that suddenly in the flash of an eye especially for me if you're away for six months you come back and three things that you'd known for your whole life have suddenly gone but there's also a sense of excitement with that because you know new things constantly arrive new people arrive new cultures and and i think that's like really important so james i was really struck among other things by gagan hart talking about his love of walking around london and we never miss an opportunity to shoehorn in some art history into Rouleur, but it very much reminded me of the surrealist poet and artist André Breton's concept of the flâneur. And the flâneur is an explorer, 
of the urban environment who wanders around the city looking for hidden meanings. And James, you live in Paris, which is the spiritual home of the Flaneur. Did that resonate with you? Absolutely. It's so refreshing. But, you know, he's a very refreshing personality. What strikes me is he's just such a down-to-earth guy. And, you know, he cares about things and he takes up different social issues and stuff. You can see it on his Instagram and things like that. And he's a rider. He's a cyclist. He's one of the best. And yet he's very curious and got a lot of interests. And that shows with that, you know, and and I thought it was a beautiful piece about loss and discovery and those things that you see all the time in urban cycling. And I'll, I'll reach out to him. And if he comes to Paris one day, I'll give him a personal a walking tour of my neighborhood, which is where all of the surrealists, the surrealist hotel is just down the street from me. Henry Miller wrote the opening pages of Tropic of Cancer about 500 meters from me. Duchamp, Dali all had studios here. And actually, Joe Dombrowski came up uh, last, two year, last year with his wife. And I walked around and showed them the different studios of Picasso and all of that. So, you know, Teo, the, the invitation is open. Next time you're in Paris, give me a shout and I'll, I'll take you around to some of these joints. I've just had an idea for ruler walking tours in uh, some of the great cities. But what this little anecdote also said to me, apart from the fact that Gegenhardt is obviously someone who goes through life with his eyes open, is that he's also really attached to his london roots and that really came through as well so to read the feature go to ruler.cc hit the subscribe button and ruler 117 the body issue will be in your hands from next week james thank you very much for your company what is next for you i just booked my uh train and my car rental for sunday i'll be going up to flanders as we're now chipping away on issue 118 which is you know obviously going to have plenty of classic stuff and under your tutelage and your, your guidance, as is so often the case, I'm going to be going and photographing just Flemish landscapes. No bike racing, no cyclists, just Flemish landscapes. And because it's such a unique stage for this sport, utterly unique. And I'm going to enjoy driving around Flanders and hopefully coming up with some uh, meaningful images that describe the unique uh, inherent beauty of this part of the world. Yeah, feels like cycling's coming home soon, isn't it? So really look forward to seeing what you get in Belgium. We're going to go for a short break now. And after our final plug for Rulo 116, Dan Cavallari will be taking over to tell us all about the Canyon Ultimate CFR. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rulo. Rulo is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. We feature the work of the best writers in cycling, along with the very best photography, elegantly laid out and printed on high-quality paper. Our deep dives into road racing, gravel, adventure cycling and life on two wheels are immersive, independent, agenda-setting and thought-provoking. We aim to educate, entertain, inform and inspire. Our latest magazine, Out Now, is Ruler 116, The Mind Issue. We all know that cycling broadens the mind. It takes us to new places and allows us to revisit familiar ones, and bike riding time is excellent thinking time. Cycling is a physical pursuit. Pedal, breathe and repeat. But the physical activity is enriched and made more meaningful by how it relates to what goes on inside our heads. Ruler 116 features exclusive interviews with two legends of road racing, Mark Cavendish and Peter Sagan. Cavendish is the joint record holder for Tour de France stage wins and has been open in the past about his struggles with mental health. 
Sagan is a three-time world champion and Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders winner. Both have had to work out how to deal with the consequences of fame and success. Also featured in Rouleau 116, the role of confidence in world tour cycling, how to plan a world hour record, how to support people in cycling who are susceptible to eating disorders, riding in the Dolomites and Spanish Badlands, plus interviews with Taylor Finney, Veronica Ewers and Safia Al-Sayeg. And also, high tea with Lachlan Morton. Rulo 116 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, joining you from snowy Colorado today. And it is, it's, it's been hard here because we got a big snowstorm and then we got another big snowstorm and the roads just didn't get plowed. So most of my riding lately has been on the trainer and I'm sure a lot of you out there today can relate to that. But as of this recording, the tour down under is just about to gear up which means the cycling season is about to start. And that's exciting. That means that we can look forward to days outside on the pavement and also for us gear nerds, uh, new bikes in the Peloton. And that's one of my favorite things to do when the race season starts is to scrutinize every frame of every shot in the Peloton to see what I can spy for new gear. And in the Peloton this year is a bike that has already been unveiled to the masses, but is new and cool nonetheless. And you will see it in the Tour Down Under and on the races coming up. And that's Canyon's Ultimate CFR. And so I wanted to get a sense of what is new about the ultimate, because it's always hard to sort of look at some bikes now because we're sort of in that refinement mode where the general shape of the bike looks pretty similar to the previous generation, but there's actually a lot of technology and changes packed into those bikes. And looking at the ultimate CFR, there are some noticeable changes, but there's also a lot hidden that will benefit the ride. So I wanted to find out what those details are. So on the line today, I have Lucas Burr, uh, the design engineer at Canyon Bicycles. He's joining me from Koblenz, Germany. Lucas, how are you? Hey, Dan, I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm very well. Thanks for uh, taking some time today to talk about the Ultimate. It's a beautiful bike. And I think one of the things that has, has happened in the recent years is that the general silhouette of the bike has uh, of the bikes in the Peloton have changed uh, quite a bit. And, and now we're sort of getting to the point where we're getting used to that silhouette and it's 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 a pleasant one. Um, and the CFR is a good example of that. But beyond that, uh, there's a lot of technology going into this bike that makes it different from its predecessor. So first of all, let's start with uh, sort of the general explanation of what the ultimate is and, and where it came from before we jump into what's new in this round of the CFR. Sure, Dan. So I think you already mentioned the most important aspect is we are used to it and it's a pleasant silhouette. And um, that was one of the main goals when developing the successor of the fourth generation. We wanted to keep this familiar shape that people already knew because it's our first road bike. It's Kenyan's first ever lightweight bike. It's a timeless classic, so to say. And yeah, we didn't really know at the beginning of the development where to aim for with this bike, with this development. So we wanted to keep it's familiar. We wanted you to be able to recognize it. But of course, we, you know, the, the first generation was, I think, six, seven years old. 
there was uh, disc brakes introduced, uh, so we we knew we had to come up with something new. But yeah, you said the most important thing is uh, it's still an ultimate. As a position in the racing quiver, where does the ultimate fit? I mean, is it a do everything bike? Is it a, an aero bike? Is it a climber bike? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, by its sheer appearance, you would say it's the classic climber's bike. It's a lightweight bike. It's our lightest uh, pro sport bike out there. And I always say as a tagline, it's the only bike that you would want to own if you only have one bike because it does it all quite well. And um, it is an all-rounder in the sense of it is light enough that you can conquer a mountain in record time. Um, We could have made it lighter, but we explicitly did not want to. We actually made it slightly heavier than necessary because we also wanted to just increase reliability. And we're talking about numbers here around, you know, like 650, 700 grams of final assembled um, and painted frame. So we're on the razor's edge of being too thin and to make it too fragile. And then we don't also want to make it too thick. So not to spend unnecessary weight. Um, So it's also robust enough. And we, I'm quite proud of the decision that we did go a little heavier than necessary that we could have made it but it's now even more reliable than the fourth generation so that's also a new aspect of thinking and then it's comfortable and you know we integrated the cables which makes it more aerodynamic and we tweaked lots of its tube shape so to further increase aerodynamic potential so Mm -hmm. it does it all pretty well it doesn't excel in any category but we say it's the perfect balance and i genuinely believe that yeah. We're going to unpack a lot of that, uh, those details. And and I think one word that struck me just now in your description is balance. And I think in the pursuit of, of lightweight over the last decade or so, bikes have often gone, and I'm not, I'm not indicting Canyon specifically here. I'm saying bikes in general have gone kind of too far into the lightweight world where you sacrifice yes. things like torsional stiffness and reliability and yes. and comfort really and you know a, a noodly bike doesn't necessarily mean it's more comfortable so i think that that pendulum swing back to sort of a middle ground of those balanced aspects is is quite a wise way to develop a bike but i think one of the other things you said that's really interesting and really hard i think for a company to say to a populace that is obsessed with weight is that we made the bike heavier now <laughs> tell, me, yeah, tell me specifically what areas of the bike got reinforced and why they got reinforced, which ended up adding yeah. to the overall weight. Sure. So we did reinforce um, certain areas of the seat stays and the chain stays, specifically close to the seat tube and the bottom bracket. Um, this is purely due to us knowing where frames tend to break in testing. And we have experience, we have excessive experience from our pro teams. They use the bikes like no one of us can physically. I mean, they're, <laughs> they sometimes outdo our test benches, you know, and we, we receive frames from them. We know where they tend to fail and um, we simulate a lot and we know where the high stress areas are um, just by sheer geometrical factor. So we decided, you know what, we see two areas that we consider critical for a frame to last a long, long time. And these need reinforcement. And this is what we did. Mm -hmm. Does that affect handling at all? Because I know, you know, the way a frame moves and bends Mm -hmm. while you're cornering or while you're putting it under pedaling strain, you know, in a sprint or up a climb, 
those those areas take a lot of stress. And did you find any opportunities to change the dynamics of the torsional movement of the frame? No, I mean, what we also talking about torsional stiffness uh, in general with the new ultimate frames is our goal was, yeah, we know we introduced CFR level frames, Canyon Factory Racing. These are the frames that our pro sports teams use every day, and they need to be benchmark in what they're aiming to do. And for the first time, we have a CFR frame with benchmark head tube and bottom bracket stiffness levels that I'm really proud of. So we are not, as you say, they're not too soft anymore. We could have gone lighter, you know, like, and you can get a very light frame, which is not very robust and just incredibly soft and, you know, terrible to handle. So that was definitely our goal to avoid that. Um, So, but actually the reinforcement is just the way we reinforce, it doesn't really affect the stiffness at all. Mm -hmm. When you say CFR and you talk about that halo level product that the racers Mm -hmm. are on, is there a certain type of carbon, first of all, a certain type of carbon that you're using that's different from other frames in the ultimate or in the Canyon lineup? And are the layups different? What exactly makes these CFR (laughs) frames different? Well, about the very, very specifics, I can't talk, but of course, sure. the layups are different. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it's a completely new layup, redone, started from scratch, basically. I mean, we do incorporate learnings from previous layups, obviously, but yeah, CFR level layup means a completely fresh layup that is designed to, you know, like get the most out of what we have to play with in terms of weight and stiffness mm-hmm. um, and robustness. So yeah, mm-hmm. sure. CFR level, it's uh, high-grade carbon fibers. The percentage of you know like benchmark fibers that we're able to source in the market at this very moment is the highest of all our frames. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the other things that's pretty immediately noticeable about the Ultimate is you know if we just rewind even five six years, the tube shapes on a climbing bike. You know, and I put that in quotes. I don't know if you can see that. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the tube shapes on a climbing bike really still focused on rounder, thinner, lighter. With yes. the, the ultimate CFR, we're seeing more aerodynamic shaping come into the quote unquote all around bike. Tell me a little yeah. bit about that evolution. When did Canyon start doing that? And when did it become apparent that that could be a balance point? Again, you know, balancing the aerodynamic performances of an aero bike with with the lightweight and climbing aspects of a climbing bike. Sure. So with the last generation, I think we started to do that. We approached aerodynamics with the lightweight climbing bike because our, you know, I mean, just by looking at the numbers as an engineer, it's pretty clear your bike needs to be aerodynamic more than lightweight to cover 98% of all use cases in the Peloton. The faster your bike, the faster you are, period, basically. But there still is a need for a climbing bike, for mountaintop finishes, uh, Tour de France stages, for example. But also, to be honest, for purely, I want to say, emotional choices by riders. You know, we wanted to give our riders the freedom of choice to say, we have two bikes that we can choose from, the Air Road and the Ultimate. Both have CFR level frames. Both need to be aerodynamic. So coming back to this thing, we could have made it lighter had we used round or roundish cross sections for our tubes in the in the frame. But our CFR frames are aimed at pro sport use in the Peloton. So there's no need to make a bike frame or like to make a bike that you can build up with six kilograms because we have a UCI weight limit, meaning 
we can spend a little bit more weight because you know round cross sections are just the lightest one in terms mm -hmm. of geometry and they tend to be the stiffest one of course mm -hmm. but we could spend a little bit or we could yeah we could spare some weight um, in order to make it more aerodynamic incorporate like just plainly saying a d shape yeah. in various cross sections yeah and i want to back up a little bit because i think you said something very important that i speak to i get a lot of questions from people about what bike should i buy what bike should i buy what bike should i buy <laughs> you know as a, as a long time tech editor that's that's the number one question i get and i always tell people that you know even if you're a climber even if you spend 95% of your time looking for the next hill, you probably are better off on at least some sort of aero bike, whether it's like an, a compromise or not a compromise, a balanced bike like Ultimate or mm -hmm. an actual aero bike because 95% of the cases of you riding that are getting yes. to the hill. Or, and, yes. and, and honestly, lightweight doesn't factor in until the road pitches up a certain degree. So even if you're climbing, a very steep degree, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So even if you're climbing, the aero bike is still better for you. What is, uh, in your experience, what is that cutoff, that very steep degree where the wispy bike really matters? Well, I can't give you. I mean, I don't have the the table in front of me. I can't give you the exact number. It depends on your on your speed also. Sure. Um, but for sure, it has a very niche use case, and you need to be as a as a pro rider, you need to be brought to that last mm -hmm. climb to that last um, steep road where you can then excel with your climbing bike. Right. Um, that's for sure. As a regular consumer, as somebody who, who wants that top level performance, but perhaps doesn't have a whole team to tow them to the bottom of that climb, mm -hmm. this makes a lot more sense as an everyday bike, a race bike, uh, you know, where, where a lot of the time spent riding is getting to the hill. Uh, so this balance aspect makes a lot of sense to me. And it's an interesting bike because we're seeing the furthering and the refining of co the combination of aero bikes and all around bikes. And I think the ultimate CFR is a really good example of that. But, you know, at first glance, if you look at this bike, if you go to the Canyon website right now and you look at this bike, you're going to see aero tube shaping and you're going to say, oh, it's aero. And you're going to see that it's pretty wispy and th thinner uh, tube shapes. And you say, oh, it's light. And those are great. But there's more details to it that make it a very interesting and versatile bike for not only racing, but everyday riding. And I want to start, uh, Lucas, with the cockpit. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I know some people hate that word. So what we're talking about is the handlebar and stem. <laughs> um, now, it's a cockpit. It's a cockpit, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's talk, first of all, integration, which is a pretty polarizing thing right now. Uh, yes. You know, cables going through handlebars and into head tubes and one piece bars and stems. Now there's a lot to unpack there in terms of the downsides of that, you know, lack of adjustability in a handlebar and, and having to work through the handlebar and stem and into the head tube and into the frame to get to cables and things like that. The ultimate CFR addresses some of those things. So let's start with the cockpit. Tell me a little bit about the development of the cockpit, how it's different and unique in, among the crop of integrated cockpit systems. Sure. So our cockpit is quite unique in terms of the adjustability that you just mentioned, because you can width adjust the cockpit. We have three different width positions at our CP18, what we call it. Um, so you don't have to like swap out a handlebar or you don't have to swap out drop bars. So 
you can, you know, if you want to write narrower, write narrower. If you want to write wider, write wider. Um, you can just um, pop off the, the drop bars. Um, if you're traveling, put it in a case. And then also what's very unique to our design is that you can height adjust that cockpit without having to cut a steerer. So if you want to ride low, if you want to ride aggressive, you take out the spacers, you drop the cockpit, you tighten it, uh, you adjust your bearing play, and, and off you go. And you don't have to, you don't have this ugly 15 millimeters of, uh, you know, like spacer stack yeah. above your stem sitting. Yeah. And this cockpit has, let's say, caused us a lot of headaches. Yes. And we've all seen <laughs> Mathieu's uh, snapped handlebars yeah. um, on TV which was quite unfortunate and it got every one of us um, <laughs> very busy for quite a few months. But this has been thoroughly resolved and I'm quite confident to say that this is the best tested cockpit that we've ever had. It is very sturdy. It's quite stiff. It, is it, although it is like a three-piece design, it, it is as stiff as our cockpits that our mm -hmm. pros yours, used before. And it's being developed to this date. So there will be new iterations coming and um, it's not our final answer to how a cockpit should look like. <laughs> and, and I'm sure you don't want to talk much about it, but can you just briefly say what happened with Matthew's handlebars and then how you addressed it? Well, they snapped. <laughs> <laughs> how did we address it? Yeah, there was a, a clamp design that wasn't very fortunate. And um, we switched back to a round drop bar shape, which is just geometrically more stable. And mm -hmm. we did gain a lot of knowledge in testing. Mm -hmm. So testing is testing is key. The better Because what we do is we, we test our products um, to such a high intensity and degree of of misuse but there's always blind spots and with a very very specific material combination we hit one of these blinds these blind spots unfortunately mm -hmm. and we figured out which one it was i can't talk about any details yeah, of sure, course sure. but yeah this has by now been resolved and this you know it it trickled down to our mass production testing and mm -hmm. it's all of our cockpits are being tested for this specific blind spot right now. Mm -hmm. So now going back to the adjustability angle of the handlebar and stem, you mentioned that you could go wider and, and narrower. Can mm -hmm. you also adjust the, the, the tilt up and down? You know, a lot of people want to be able to spin the handlebar back the way you would with a traditional two piece system. Is that possible on yours? It's not, no. Now, okay. our top bar, what we call is fixed um, mm -hmm. in terms of angle of attack, so to say. You mm -hmm. could, of course, adjust your STI position, so mm -hmm. how high or low you want to have it. And, you know, since it's a three-piece design, let's just say it gives us room to play with different drop bar designs for the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. That's good. That's a good, a good hint of what may be coming. Let's move a little bit further uh, down. And one of the things that is mentioned pretty frequently when you read about the ultimate CFR is that, uh, first of all, there's more tire clearance than there ever has been before, but there's yes. also some extra space between the, uh, the tire and the top of the fork crown. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that and why that might be the case? Oh, it's purely, sure. It's purely for aerodynamic reasons. Um, mm -hmm. We had various iterations and variations of the fork crown design. It was, it's a very interesting area in the frame set when it comes to aerodynamics. And we mm -hmm. just found out that this, the way it's shaped, the shorter you make the head tube, the higher you move the foreground, the more beneficial in terms of aerodynamics it is for this specific type of frame. So for like a lightweight climbing 
frame, this is very beneficial in terms of aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. Now, so basically this, this gap between the top of the tire and the forecrown is allowing air to move with less turbulence through that area? Yes, it, it basically just gives air room to move and then it mm -hmm. hits the down tube. And as you said, you know, this is not a round uh, cross-section, it's an aerodynamic profile. And this is um, aerodynamically beneficial because our fork is quite, our fork head is quite massive, quite thick, which comes down to the stiffness to weight value that we wanted to achieve. So it's very light. So mm -hmm. it needs to have a very big geometric cross-section while being as stiff as possible. So again, we had to make a compromise here and yeah, find a, a good balance between mm -hmm. area, uh, frontal area of the forecrown and then how we make the airflow around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as a general rule of, of aerodynamics, I mean, when you look at a bicycle, a lot of what you're going to address first is clearly at the front of the bike, the leading edge. And sure. as a leading edge, your your tire is really the the leading edge here and, and the wheel and then, and then through the fork. So like many other brands and basically every other brand, uh, everybody's gone with wider tires for mm -hmm. comfort purposes and for aerodynamic purposes and all sorts of, you know, rolling resistance uh, studies have been done about how wider is faster. How does a wider tire or does a wider tire and wheel affect the design of the fork itself and then consequently the, the down tube? I mean, does that airflow uh, have an impact on the frame design? Oh, yes, 100%. I mean, I'm already working on a new new platform, of course, where we specifically had to make a conscious choice about how wide of tires do we want to fit, compromising aerodynamic performance. Because the wider tire you want to fit, the wider clearance you have to have. And then there's only such and such width that you can go down to for a fork leg. So it needs, you know, there's a cable running through the fork leg, the front brake cable. And also, yeah, you need to still be able uh, in manufacturing to compress that tube uh, with mm -hmm. your with your bladder. So there is quite, quite an important uh, manufacturing limitation that you have to take into consideration. And so the wider tires you want to fit, the wider your fork will be and the more frontal area you will have in the wind. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all, I mean, and we're talking fairly minute differences, but they can add up as the wind passes over the whole entirety of the bike. And yes. so moving back toward the, the rear end of the bike, let's talk about, um, the seat post and the seat tube junction, both in terms of functionality for comfort and, and versatility, but also in terms of aerodynamics. Tell me a little bit about the design process there. What were you running into that necessitated a, a D-shaped post and hiding the pinch bolt the way you guys have? <laughs> well, what was beneficial for us was that the Ultimate always employed this, what we call, I mean, translated from German, it's called seat knot, so Sitzknoten, um, the, yeah, the junction where the seat stays, meet the seat tube, meet the top tube, that area. And we always had room there. And we thought, you know, there is room there already. We want to keep the silhouette. Why don't we use that room? And then the the D-shaped seat post and seat tube was actually one of the most promising areas to have aerodynamic improvement compared to the um, fourth generation Ultimate. And then, yeah, we've played around with, I don't know how many cross sections and found what we see as the optimal balance between aerodynamics and comfort also, because you can have like an, an arrowed seat post, you know, with a very, very deep 
D section, so to say, and it will it will be stiff as hell, and you won't have a nice ride on it. And so, our ultimate is aimed at people that want to get a certain comfort out of their racing bike mm -hmm. more than the aeroad. So yeah, we had to find a balance there, and we saw compared to a round seat post and seat tube, um, the D shape was just very beneficial. I can't give you the exact numbers of how much it. Um, uh, uh, what the percentages of the overall frame sets mm -hmm. aero drag, but it's quite significant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and to give a sense of how a D-shaped post uh, improves comfort, I mean, we know we can, we can tell from the shape that it's aerodynamic because it mm -hmm. is that D-shape, that truncated airfoil type shape. Mm -hmm. But in terms of comfort, that in combination with a lower pinch bolt and the lower uh, seat stays, how does yes. that? How exactly does that create comfort? Well, it depends on where you clamp the seat post. The lower you clamp it, the more free bending length you have, but also the more relative movement you have between your seat post and the seat tube area around it. So that can prove quite um, quite dramatic, as, as can your nose. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, you all again have to find a balance here. And there is a lot you can do in terms of layup. So this is why we have two different seat posts. You can get one, a little heavier seat post with a little bit more setback where we employ a little bit more actually of glass fiber, mm -hmm. um, which is a lot more flexible, not as brittle, and you get a lot more comfort out of your seat posts. So what we call compliance, generally speaking. And yeah, we saw that the lower you, um, you could like also uh, increase the, um, um, the angle of the top tube, um, but we saw the the lower you have the clamping area, the less stiff your frame is, and this right. is still our stiffness to weight king. So that mm -hmm. that wasn't the thing that we could do. Sure, it all comes back to that concept of balance, and uh, you know, yes. I th I think when a bike like this comes out, the tagline is often, "It's faster by X percent," and and a lot of times mm -hmm. what brands will do is take very subtle frame changes but put drastically different wheels on them. And that accounts for much of <laughs> yes. the, the Very good. The good, yeah. good spot then. Yes. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about the numbers here. Is, is the frame yes. legitimately faster regardless of the wheels that you're using? Yes. So we tested it in our wind tunnel in Southern Germany, not our wind tunnel, but the wind tunnel that we usually go to mm -hmm. and that most brands actually employ as a benchmark, as a place where they test their frames. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to provide our numbers with the exact same wheels compared to the predecessor. And with our DT Swiss ARC 1100s and 50 millimeter rim height, we are 10 watts faster in terms of frame set without a rider. And then we have our leg dummy called Ferdy. Mm -hmm. And with Ferdy on it, we are still five watts faster than the predecessor. But yeah, we did not gain any weight advantage or aero advantage um, due to wheel specifications that we ship the bike with, which mm -hmm. I know is being done quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy story to tell, right? You know, we, we yes. had to come up, had to be faster, so we put new wheels on it. And you know, yeah, but also this bike. So, uh, sorry to interrupt. This bike yeah. is also, I know, like marketing loves that you know like give me they come to an engineer and say give me x percent more stiffness give me y percent more aerodynamic drag or less aerodynamic drag why is this bike so much better but this to me also if you sit on it and if you ride it i think we pretty much nailed the geometry for this type of bike mm -hmm. so it's just a lot of fun to ride and this is a very very important aspect that 
we oftentimes leave out when we talk about this bike being used in the peloton and it is being used at the peloton you know it won two world test stages Enric Maas loves it so and it's won a world cup title um mm-hmm. so this bike is capable of doing that but for you and i you know i will never win a world title but i ride this and i'm having i'm having fun so the yeah, emotional aspect yeah. of this bike is uh, oftentimes a little underrated so yeah. we that's another story that marketing needs to tell. Yeah. And that is a much harder story to tell, right? When a bike has a personality versus when it doesn't, right? When you get a bike that you get along with, you know, when people say that it's not because it's X percent faster or Y percent more, you know, lighter. It's because it has a personality that, that agrees with them. That that's a combination of geometry, the frame flexing where it's supposed to flex and not flexing where it's not supposed to flex. I mean, a million different things. And I think that counts for a lot. And that's hard to quantify without actually throwing your leg over a bike. So that's, that is definitely a challenge. Numbers are great, right? But, yes. but a bike you get along with right. is the one that's going to help you win. So I think this is a neat right. approach. We're just about out of time here, uh, Lucas. But uh, before we go, is there anything we haven't covered about the Ultimate CFR that people should know? I mean, why should they consider this bike? Is there something else that we have not talked about that makes this the choice for a performance rider? Because it was developed with the performance rider. I mean, I know, I know many brands claim that, and I can only testify to Kenyon's account. But what we do is we not only develop our material for our riders, but also with our riders, which I am quite proud of. And it, you know, our pro teams are such a huge asset for me as an engineer because you know I sit in front of the computer, I go to the test lab, I do write myself, but. We have just sources of information and experience and expertise that are not available to to everyone. And that's just amazing to work with our teams and to have that genuine pro sport DNA woven into our frames. And yeah, it's something that is I'm just very, very lucky to have as a, as a bike developer. Mm-hmm. Lucas, thanks for joining me today and, and talking through the Canyon Ultimate. And you can uh, look at this bike right now on the Canyon website, canyon.com. There's lots of great information about the development of the bike and all the advantages. Uh, and if But if you have questions about the Canyon Ultimate or uh, any of the podcasts that we do here at Ruler Magazine, feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter at SlowGuyFastRide or on Instagram, SlowGuyOnTheFastRide. They give me a few more letters over there, which I think is nice. And of course, I'm always happy to pass on your questions to Lucas and pester him and get get answers that you are dying to hear. Uh, So please do feel free to reach out. Lucas, thank you again for joining me today. It was a pleasure to chat. Anytime, Dan. Thanks a lot. And thank you all for listening today. We'll catch you in the next episode of The Ruler Podcast. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 